Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to Motors and Martinis with Brian Rab Davis and Mr. Carrie Hubbard. Uh, we do apologize. It has been a hot minute since we have laid down a track for your uh, audio delectation. I know that was really pretentious and also not entirely correct. But, you know, life does have this... Uh, this lovely way of getting in the way. So anyway, uh, we are back with you with uh, a, an episode once again. And uh, today, Carrie and I uh, are going to talk about yet another matter dear and near to our hearts, and that is guilty pleasures. Uh, in other words, uh, cars that, you know, pretty much any normal human being would sneer at, but we think are, are worthy uh, uh, automobiles and trucks and vans and, and uh you know things we would actually uh, own or have owned in the past. So that that's kind of what we're uh, what we're looking at today. But before we go down that uh, pothole-strewn road, Carrie, how are things in Albuquerque, New Mexico? Uh, well, things are things. I, life is slowly getting back to some level of I'll use air quotes normality. Um, just trying to you know figure out what I need to do and trying to get projects you know figured out and sorted i did get my uh new to me 64 corvair spider turbo convertible that i inherited from my very dear friend that passed away in march got that a couple of weeks ago finally i pull it out of the backyard and i've been tinkering with it and trying to make it run correctly because uh, corvair turbos are a little finicky but other than that i've been mostly doing a lot of photography i really do need to pick up a wrench though it's getting a little dire at this point but a little out of time Ah, uh, well, speaking of wrenches, I am still driving the 500 Abart, and uh, the other day she did that thing to me again where the, uh, where I dropped cylinder number three, and uh, it was all down to oil that was not as clean as it should have been, although it was well under the, the you know, factory-recommended change interval, and after I switched her off, switched her back on again, everything was copacetic, and it was hitting on all four, uh, got her home, changed the oil, and it's been fine ever since. Uh, but it makes me wonder if someday I'm going to have to replace that multi-air variable valve timing uh, brick, is, is what they call it in the community. And, uh, you know, there's... So... You know, these... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I'm curious on that very specifically, um, because, like, AMS oil, I think it's AMS oil, makes a oil stiction modifier, which is very common to use in, like, a Ford Power Stroke, because those have problems with, like, weird oil flow issues in the injectors uh, for the diesel. I'm wondering if you added a slight oil friction modifier to that, if it would clean up or basically solve your problem. You know, that's well worth considering, because that, it is, what, as near as I can tell, based on what I've learned from my research and the way the Gohar is behaving, uh, it is down to just micropollutants in the oil. And I'm using the factory-specified oil, I'm using a high-grade filter, uh, you know, I'm doing all the things right. But I, I think there is some wisdom in what you say there, because it's going to be one of those situations where either, A, the multi-air brick is going to shit the bed any minute and I'll have to replace it for a lot of money, or B, it'll carry on like it is for 150,000 miles. I, I do think it's one of those kind of uh, situations. There's not going to be an in-between. It'll either last forever uh, while throwing the occasional temper tantrum or completely destroy itself. Yeah, I would, uh, I'll would. i send you that link to that oil uh, friction modifier because it's actually kind of a big problem that not a lot of people really consider and... Uh, I bet that would actually clean it up a lot, but fun with entertaining mechanical bits on cars. Yay. <laughs> well, and uh, 
Yeah, and right now, actually, speaking of, speaking of cars that are as reliable as gravity, we're up here in Maine, Chris and I, with the, the 92 Caprice wagon, and she's just happy as a clam and, you know, getting all kinds of attention, so. That is such a cool car. Oh, yeah, she she, she is worth uh, every penny paid for her and more, uh, doesn't owe us a cent. I mean, she, she did have that one little issue a while back that was all down to an ignition module where she left Chris and his family stranded on I-95. That was all kinds of entertaining, but uh, other than that, in... Uh, Chris, how long have we had the Caprice now? Uh, October 2020. Okay, so going on three years, and and in that time, other than routine maintenance, uh, this is the only thing it's it's this is the only time it's let us down. So really, can't complain at all about that. I've known modern cars that have had a worse track record than that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this thing, you know, she's got about 160 thousand on the clock, but you know, all all is uh, generally copacetic with the old girl. Ooh, I see a lovely, is that a martini glass or is that just coffee? Oh, well, it's a little of column A and a little of column B. So I got these, uh, I know those listening can't see, but uh, I went to Rennie's, which is a a main discount store, and they've got all kinds of cool stuff, and I got these little lowboy cocktail glasses. So it's like a martini glass, but on a short stem, for those who cannot see what I'm holding in my hand. And in it is Allen's Coffee Brandy, or as it's known to uh, Mainers, fat ass in a glass. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a local speciality of questionable quality. But, um, you know, when, it, when in Rome or Maine, one must do uh, what the Mainers and Romans do. Nice. No, I like that glass. That's really nice because I do enjoy drinking out of a martini glass, but conventional martini glasses 90% of the times are just annoying they are they they look better than they are to use and these are that's actually the whole reason i bought these well that and they were only 99 cents a piece so i'm like you know i was i'm trying to build a little bar area here at the trailer and i'm like oh those are perfect for camp because they're inexpensive they're hard to spill but it's still a cocktail glass so you can still uh, you know in, indulge like an adult nice heck yeah i completely lost my train of thought there and my but that's okay we'll we'll get back on track on add theater here I know, right? Welcome to the ADD Theater. Um, I don't know what is, what else I was going to say. Uh, I don't know. I've been total space cadetting a lot of stuff recently. I mean, I actually... Um, the podcast is not the only thing that has been kind of uh, greater periods of time between episodes. I haven't really done much with the YouTube channel in several months. I've just been uh, dealing with so much. But I am starting to finally record another episode on the new Corvair Turbo. So I'm going to have that out hopefully in the next few days. But, I mean, really, it's been my trying to recenter myself and doing a lot with my darkroom and my photography that has really brought me a lot of solace, kind of joy. It's been really nice. But I really need to tinker with cars again. Oh, no, darkroom work is very satisfying, and it's it's very focusing because you're in a dark room, and you are looking solely at what you are working on uh, in very limited, you know, your red light situation. So... Yeah, you you can just focus on that. I, I I haven't done darkroom work in years, but I could see why it's it's been a passion of yours. Oh yeah, I'll go in there. I'll have a big uh, thing a sl- of uh, my negatives that I developed, and I'll put some crazy music on, have a couple of beers, and I mean I'll zone out in there for four or five hours without even blinking an eye, and it's it's been nice. But alas, I need to focus on other projects as well. <laughs> well, I get that because uh, one of the things I'll do is. Uh, I'll, I'll crack a beer and fire up the uh, lawn tractor and mow the yard because we've got almost an acre, so it takes a while. And you you definitely get hypnotized by the uh, 
by the drone of the, the mighty Briggs & Stratton V-Twin that powers our limited edition Craftsman Lawn Tractor. Ooh. Nice. So, uh, circling back to the, uh, the subject at hand here, guilty pleasures. I, I suggested when we were doing our pre-prep here for the program that we each pick three cars, a daily driver, a Sunday fun day car, and some kind of uh, truck, van, wagon, or other utilitarian hauler that falls into the guilty pleasure category. In other words, a car that we like, but pretty much anyone else might ridicule us for liking. So, so Carrie, did you have a chance to... to run that through your biological computer and, and uh, come up with some answers. I I did. Um, it's kind of funny for me. It was a little bit more on the difficult side because, you know, I have a lot of cars and I do own the, a lot of ridiculed vehicles and most people would just be like, oh my God, why? So I had to try and think even more outside of the box and I did come up with one. I have a couple of others for the other categories, but I did come up with one as a daily driven vehicle that some love some hate and i would actually consider buying one and that would be a 2002 to 2004 volkswagen new beetle turbo s oh my you're you're getting in touch with your love for for uh, german machinery and uh, your inner club kid i love for circa two that circa that time period uh, well, you you definitely saw those out of uh, in the parking lots of establishments that catered to the homosexual clientele in those days well, and it's one of those, you know, like looking back at it, you know, a new Beetle's a new Beetle. I've driven dozens and dozens of them. I've worked on so many of them between two liters and automatics and diesels and, you know, all everything in between. And um, it wasn't until actually a few years ago that I saw one. I was like, that looks a little odd. And I did some research and found out the Turbo S model had, you know, a revised body. Uh, the interior trim was a little bit different. Bigger wheels, tires, six-speed manual with a 1.8-liter turbo engine, which is a very good engine, you know, maintained. And I got a chance to drive a red Turbo S a few years ago, and I was like, yeah, it's a new Beetle, but it was surprisingly fun to drive. Like, it, it would throw you back, and you'd have a good old time. I was like, I'd, I'd cruise one of those regu regularly. Now, um, I know that the new Beetles are essentially a Golf under the skin. Does it drive differently from the contemporary Golf? Very, very different. The 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 general uh, because I mean the new Beetle is basically a Mark IV. When the new I know saying quotes a new Beetle when it came out in 1998, which is really weird to think about. That was basically a Mark IV Golf, but you have to think about the. Uh, body design compared to a Golf. You know, you don't have the big hatchback section over the rear wheels. Um, kind of where you sit in the cars a little bit differently. So it is actually a very different feel. If you drive a 2002 New Beetle compared to a 2002 Golf, they are two very, very different feeling cars. Gosh, that's interesting because I, I would have thought for sure the driving experience for the Beetle would have been, you know, blindfold the passenger. Well, if you could drive blindfolded rather, would would have been dead nuts for the Golf that it was based on. But that that's very surprising. Like. And the flip side of that coin is I've driven uh, TC by Maseratis, uh, oh, you know, yeah. the Chryslerati. The Chrysler <laughs> I've driven those with the three-liter Mitsubishi engine, which was used in the LeBaron and minivans and other Chrysler products. And it drives exactly like, I mean, you can tell the, the commonality between it and other Chrysler products of the day, with the exception of you're sitting in that gorgeous ruched leather catcher's mitt of a seat. Other than that, it feels Mopar all day, every day. And I guess that's okay. 
Yeah, it's and you know you look at between like a LeBaron and a TC, you know they're very similar. But like on the new Beetle, the way the rear suspension handles compared to a Golf, you actually feel it. It's it's a little I'd say, it's a little more bouncy, not as forgiving as a Golf. And um, yeah, it's 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 an odd driving experience compared to you know some of the other stuff that you would think was a lot more conventional. Yeah, a little bouncy. I wonder if they used the same springs, but there was less weight over the rear end, and you know, thus giving you a higher spring rate. But you know, again, I'm sure I'm sure there's a, a VW anorak out there who will tell me exactly what's going on. But very interesting yeah. observation. I've worked on them. I've driven them. I don't know a huge amount about them because it's never been one of those like passionate sides of things. Now the the one that I would kill to get my hands on, but you know, that never has happened is that special edition. Beetle Type RS, I think, that had the Turbo VR6 all-wheel drive, and they only made a handful of them, and they're several hundred thousand dollars now. Those are insane. Well, uh, yeah, I should say, to the very least, that's that's uh, that's quite a little pocket rocket there. So what is your guilty pleasure daily driver? Okay, this is the opposite end of the spectrum in every way. Like, the, the new Beetle was very much a youth, or well, it was nostalgic, but it was still a youthful car. It was a poppy, fun, happy car. It was all about the feel-good feels. My guilty pleasure daily driver is the Kia Amante. Oh my god, I remember those. I've worked on a few of those. And the reason it's my pick is because... It reminds me of the sort of thing that Austin Rover would make if, well, Rover, you know, you know, did their thing. But like, if if the British Leyland of the '70s had continued on and Austin had continued on, I could see them making a sedan like that. It's frumpy, um, it's comfortable, it's it's got pretensions of grandeur that it can't quite make. And uh, it also is it's from the days when, when Kia didn't have the respect it currently has and frankly deserves. So, yeah, the, the Kia Amante of about 20 years ago, that would be my daily driver choice. That And it's, it's very much a grandma car. It's an old lady car, and I am an old lady. I could see that. I've, I have driven a couple of those back in the day. And, you know, and yes, it was of that era that Kia was still a very frowned upon, kind of a poo-pooed brand. And... It was interesting that even in that era, they tried to create that level of a sedan compared to, you know, just an Econo box like all the other Kias were. And um, I remember seeing a few of them being like, well, that's kind of not what I would have expected. And, you know, nowadays, what with Hyundai, Kia, you know, their Renis, Genesis, whatever their high-end yeah. brand, you know, their... Genesis. Genesis, but, that's yeah, what it is. It, it, it kind of presaged that because, okay, I wouldn't call it the handsomest thing in the world, but... It was a very worthy car, and it definitely was on par with other uh, sort of lower-mid-level luxury machines of the day. It was definitely a better car than, say, a Buick Century, although I like those, too. Oh, geez. The early 2000s Buick Centuries, that was seriously of the era that quality control was so bad. Like, oh, GM, bless their hearts. I've been a GM guy since I was a kid, but there is that time frame where it's like, oh, no. No, no. Oh, and I know, and especially at that time, the plastic they were using. Well, actually, I know what happened to the rest of it because it's now what Volkswagen uses in the back seat trim of their cars. Like they'll make the front seat of a higher grade than the back seat. The you t you touch the plastic, it's like, oh gosh, I'm taken back t to General Motors in the early aughts. This is great. Whereas the I forget what automotive announcer years ago was like, oh, this is similar to the plastic on a chocolate box divider. 
Oh God, but that's exactly it. But you know, uh, back to back to the Amanti and its luxury aspirations. Um, you know, when they first came out, they had a 200 horse, three and a half liter V6, and a five speed automatic transmission. And in the early 2000s, uh, a five speed auto was that was kind of a big deal. Yep, that was still the four speed overdrive was the king of the automatic. For oh my gosh, I have an overdrive, and adding another gear that was so mystical back then. Yeah, it actually was. Yeah, I. I I remember the first car with a five-speed automatic I drove was uh, my friend Simon's, um, God, was it? It was a Jaguar Vanden Plot. It was one of the last of the steel-bodied cars, and it great car. I mean, it really was lovely to drive, but uh, that was one of the first with a multi-gear automatic or more than four-speed automatics I'd ever, ever piloted. I enjoyed that car immensely. I think the first five-speed auto I ever drove was an E32 chassis 740IL BMW, and that was the uh, the Z what the Z yeah the ZF5 automatic, which was um, I'm not sure who did it, the BMW and I don't know GM might have started doing it around them too, but it was the one where it was very uh, um, computer controlled in the valve body instead of just you know normal linkages and stuff and the computer actually would control the the pressures in the valve body a fantastic transmission very smooth you know i believe that a variation of that gearbox is what jaguar used as well at that time so uh, although again someone someone will certainly correct me in the comments uh but i i digress so next next uh, next category is our sunday fun day sporty driver so i'm i'm dying to hear what you've picked out for that one i want to hear what you picked out first Oh, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Uh, so th- this is going to come as no surprise. I went for the Triumph TR8. That's what I was going to go for. And I was like, nope, he's going to go for it. I got to pick something else. <laughs> you know me too well. Um, I don't think I need to explain to anyone why, because we've g- it's the last of the Anglo-American hybrids where we've got, uh, I mean, I know the Rover V8 was a Buick engine, but anyway, we've got a nice... V8-powered Roadster with a really distinctive style. And if you've never driven one, uh, the really impressive thing about the TR8 is it feels of a piece, even as a convertible, which is quite amazing considering it was never designed to be a convertible. Uh, The TR7 was coupe only when it was introduced, and they did the Roadsters later, but uh, the chassis rigidity is quite impressive. They've got a a really pleasingly solid feel to them, and uh, the cockpit is comfortable for for a big guy like me. I'm a good you know six one two bills easy and and I'm I could tour for hour on end in in a TR8. Just lovely lovely machines. Those are definitely very fun and again with a lot of the other stuff, there's a lot of love and a lot of hate and there's really not much in between on those. Exactly. I almost went for a TR7 because I think they are more of a guilty pleasure than a TR8. Uh, but I just couldn't resist the TR8 because of their exclusivity and the beautiful noises the Rover slash Buick V8 makes. Oh, yeah. Oof. Those would be fun. So, for me, I I don't know if it would be as much ridiculed or, you know, guilty pleasure. But for me, it's very entertaining because as a little Sunday fun day, I would love to be hooning around in a K car, and so I would have to pick the Suzuki Cappuccino. Oh, good choice. You know, Which, last ironically, I... being six two in one of those is hysterical, but they are a hoot to drive. 
last time I saw one of those, it was I was in Baltimore of all places, Baltimore, Maryland. And these guys had one parked on the side of the road, and they were just you know, obviously enthusiasts chatting about it. And I stopped. I think I was in my, yeah, I was in the Colorado, and I'm like, dude, Suzuki Cappuccino, sweet. And you know, they waved, gave me a thumbs up because they knew I knew what it was. But yeah, good choice. I I hadn't even thought about a K car. That was uh, really really nice nice going on your part there. And I, for me, I have this thing where I really do genuinely enjoy driving a right-hand drive car. It's a very lovely experience. I, I have got a couple still to this day, and I really do enjoy it. And, you know, a little K car that you can just throw around with that little engine that's super revvy is just, I mean, what a hoot to go cruise around on the weekends in. Oh, and that's exactly it. It's a Sunday fun day car. You probably wouldn't want to use it as your daily, but just to go blast through the hills, beautiful. Um... Actually, one of my if I if I won the lottery, so I didn't have to support myself, so I had enough time and mental bandwidth to do it. I I really want to write an English language K car spotters guide. So you've got you know Suzuki Cappuccino, and you've got the side view, front view, three quarter view, all the pictures, uh, photograph of the engine, then the nice table with the the you know well they're all six hundred some odd CCs, but it's got the you know number of cylinders. Turbo, non-turbo. Is there a K car that's not turbocharged because they're trying to wring everything they can out of them? But all the specifications, the suspension, the steering, and so on, just everything in a nice table on the one side. And on the other side of the page, um, you know, great photos of the car with little captions uh, drawing your attention to high points in the styling and, and history and so on. I would love to write that book. So a friend of mine actually in Albuquerque has a Mitsubishi... No, it's a Daihatsu Sharad Micra. Micra. So it's a K car SUV, automatic, 600 and something cc's, naturally aspirated, and it is so lethargic. It is almost comically slow, but God, it's fun to drive. Well, and I can see that because it probably. I mean, 600 cc's, even with the turbo, it's probably putting out what, 75 horse, maybe. And yeah, and probably. That- and probably about the same in torque, but it's probably not making any torque until five grand. Exactly. But they are a hoot. Brings you back to a very different time, just those entertaining styles of cars. No, And that's just it. God, they've got personality for days. And it's another great... The K-Car is a great example of where um, government oversight actually resulted in the auto industry coming up with solutions that met those requirements that were far more interesting than what they would have done otherwise. They're always going to hit the lowest bar they have to reach. So if the bar is raised for them, uh, manufacturers nine times out of ten are going to reach it. And sometimes the results are absolutely amazing. And the, the, the whole K-Car class, uh, I think, speaks to that. Oh, it was a fantastic and well-executed um, you know, system to be able to you know, drive a vehicle with a lesser of a license because oh, you know, in certain countries, getting a driver's license, especially for a normal car, is extremely complicated and expensive. But, you know, driving on a motorcycle license in a smaller vehicle, as long as it's not like an LPV in France, which were the les premiers voitures, those teeny little cars you could drive without a driver's license that were, oh dear, very different, but oh dear. Mon dieu. Oh, and then there's the Citroen Mahari. You've got me off on an entire... Oh, 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 oh. All right, I'm going to have to make a quick pause in the program. So, um, a few weeks back in Detroit was the combined Malaise Motors, Brougham Society, GM Front Wheel Drive Society show. And uh, 
the show was small. We we didn't have a whole lot of cars. Uh, organization could have definitely been better. Mea culpa, mea culpa. Uh, but one of our attendees brought his Doshavo, and I got to take it for a ride. Aren't they lovely? Oh my lord, mon dieu! She's the car. She she leans. She creaks. The gear shift. She goes in. She goes out. And the little two-cylinder engine. She goes on. Uh-huh. Très vitesse. Uh, okay, well, no vitesse, but still, it was an absolute delight. Absolute delight. You know, it's one of those, it takes a couple of minutes to get used to the fact you make a turn, you feel like you're, the damn thing's going to flip over, and then to actually be like, oh, this is rather entertaining, as it wobbles back and forth because of the insane no. amount of suspension travel. But once you get used to that, God, they're such fun cars. Well, they are. They they lean like hell, but the grip is astounding, and they... they uh, uh, I, I'm convinced that that incredible body roll is just to ash your galois while you're making the corner. Well, yeah. <laughs> and it's one of the only few cars that you can take a turn with your foot buried to the floor because it doesn't have enough horsepower to really do anything, and it just kind of goes... keeps going. I know yeah, I've done yeah, it many the, times. Yeah, the, the 2CV is definitely more than the sum of its parts. It was a beguiling machine. Absolutely beguiling. Oh, Yeah. I need to I need to figure out a decent schedule and uh, get some projects moved along, and I need to get my two CV up and going. God, I would love to be driving that thing around out here. Oh, perfect car for where you're at, especially uh, some of those uh, rutted roads on the outskirts of Albuquerque. I, I mean, it would handle that with absolute aplomb. It would just soak up the bumps without breaking your eggs. And that is what it was designed for, Monsieur. We, <laughs> uh, oui. um. So after that little ADD moment, uh, what, what was your what was your choice for a truck, van, or wagon, or other utilitarian hauler? Um, very specifically, a early to mid '80s Ford E350 Econoline long tail van with a 6.9 liter IDI diesel. That's a very interesting choice. And my next question is: Are you going to be giving out Tootsie Rolls or lollipops? free wi-fi that's what they're about nowadays brilliant (laughs) brilliant but i would not get a panel van version i would get a windowed passenger version because those you can get as a one ton the e350 is a one ton they're very capable towing vehicles they got incredible interior space you know they got fairly decent climate control systems and the long tail one tons even knowing it's sprung like hell they're fairly comfortable and i've driven worked on several of them and they're very charming. I really love driving early to mid-80s Ford vans. They're just, I mean, of course, a million of them are made, you know, U-Haul stuff, but as just a normal E350 van with the 6.9 International Navistar diesel, it's just, oh, I love those. You know, back in the pre-Malaise Motors days, I was engaged as an antique dealer, and, um, you know, there's always a need to haul furniture from the shop, and I had a brilliant idea of getting a delivery van so that I could haul furniture to customers' houses and charge them a modest fee to do so and make some money on the side. Well, everyone expected the furniture to be delivered for free, and I'm like, really? But before yeah. I learned that, I um, I bought a van off a of Facebook market. No, sorry, sorry Craigslist. Craigslist, because this is going back, gosh, uh, eight or nine years ago. You know, long before Malay's Motors and long before the the current uh, bring a second mortgage. Um, used car culture and prices that are attendant there too and so I bought for $650 a three-quarter ton Chevy no it was a one ton I'm sorry one ton Chevy van 1975 nice yeah she she had some rust 
but uh, 354 barrel ran like a striped ass ape. It was a great car. It didn't know it wasn't a Chevelle. Nice. Oh, those are those are great. And honestly, I love the Chevy vans too, those era. But there's something about those block nose Ford vans of the 80s that are, to me, they're charming. And it brings me back to a very different place. And especially being in the the plumbing and heating world growing up in it, and those were everywhere. And I just, that was tra- charming to me. No, I. Well, and actually, too, that was at the point where even Ford instruments were square. Everything was square. Oh. The only reason why the steering wheel and the uh, the wheels weren't square is because you can't turn a square. Other than that, everything else was bloody square, designed with a straight edge. I swear. Well, I mean, the, I can almost hear, I can almost hear the conversation in Dearborn now. It's like, uh, yeah, here, d- 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 make a block. Oh, it's time to go golf and have some cocktails. Fabulous. Exactly. So, what is your number three category for a truck van or such thing? Well, I went a lot more modern, and uh, it's one of the few modern or comparatively modern vehicles that I think has got some charm that goes above its uh, design and quality of construction. I went for the, <laughs> you're going to, as a Fiat 500 driver, you're going to uh, not find this a shock at all. I chose the Dodge Ram Promaster City, which is actually a nice. Fiat Doblo van. Which you can get a Citroen front for and turn it into a Citroen van, too. Oh. oh, that's right, because they're they're offering those as Citroens as well. But for the U.S. market, um, they did away, you know, they didn't have, like in Europe, you could get them with little like 1.4 liter engines that are actually related to the one in my 500. Um, but you could, in, in, in the States, they had the, the uh, 2.4 liter Tiger Shark four-cylinder, I think it was like 180 horse or thereabouts. And, uh, you know, they'll more than get out of its own way. And I just like the fact that it's a front-wheel drive utility van, which is sort of, you know, it, it flies in the face of the like your your E three fifty, where it's a you know traditional uh, body on frame uh, V eight rear drive, traditional American think van. Oh yeah, the uh, the brewery I used to work at last year, they had one of those Dodge vans that they used to, for delivering beer, and I drove it a few times to the hardware store to get some stuff for doing work at the brewery and. I was actually pleasantly surprised. A very nice commanding driving position. It was fairly comfortable. The the wind the dry the the door windows and kind of the seam, those are kind of awkward I found, but in general, I found it as a very charming European driving experience, which I really liked. Well, some friends of mine who have a, a vintage and contemporary appliance sales and repair business near where I live uh, run one. Actually, they run two as delivery and, and service vans, and they're very happy with them. Yeah. Of, of course, he's also got a, Chrys- a 1986 Chrysler Laser Turbo that he bought new in the garage, so that uh, tells you the kind of people they are. Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, yeah, and he may have also, con- well, his partner may have also confessed to me about uh, the, uh, oh, wait, no, I'm confusing the brothers. Never mind. We'll, 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 we'll leave the cocaine-fueled 1980s parties he was telling me about for another day. That was, uh, oh. you know, maybe maybe a little too 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 personal of a tangent to go on uh, for motors and martinis. <laughs> well, nice. So, uh, so for me, Turbo S Beetle with a. I think all those actually had six-speed manuals. I could be wrong, but that's one of the other charming things about that. Uh, Suzuki Cappuccino and a Ford E three fifty diesel van. That would be and a fun that- little bit. That would be an excellent stable. And then I've got my Kia Amante, my my 
ersatz wannabe aspirational middle class upper middle class luxury vehicle i've got the triumph tr8 which would decorate the driveway nicely and the dodge ram promaster for when i'm on a real estate sale bender you know what you selected would definitely be a bit more on the uh conspicuous side you know somebody driving by seeing those you know they see the triumph and probably you know take a second glance at it but other than the other stuff they'd be like eh, whatever vehicles what uh you know my what i would have selected is definitely a little bit more on the well that's kind of odd let me just stare at those for a minute but i guess i'm kind of used to that with what i already have well, and I, I've got to say, I was seriously tempted to um, go for a Chrysler PT Cruiser as a daily driver because um, I, I don't know if I know of any vehicle that's more unanimously hated yet unanimously loved that was built in the last 25 years than the PT Cruiser because, uh, yeah, they are a polarizing car. But I think they were a great success for Chrysler, and like the... They, they drive nicely. I think their fit and finish is a cut above, given given that it's just a, a tall neon, essentially. God, I remember when those came out, and just the... the it was such a fan favorite of people, because, you know, that classic redesigned styling when they started doing that, you know, with the Thunderbird and that Chevy SS truck thing and the HHR and all this stuff, and... but. You know, the PT Cruiser wasn't really that bad until you had to work on it. And, oh, my God, it was just an absolute pill of a nightmare to work on. Oh, that's what you've explained. I've done a little bit of work on one. And, yeah, the, the body work erected on the, the Plymouth floor, the neon floor plan. Uh, yeah, they, di- they didn't take the poor service tech's knuckles in mind when they designed it. Not in the slightest, but... Um, you know, one of those with that goofy SRT performance stage two package with a manual, which I've seen a couple of, is kind of the most oxymoron thing you can have a high performance, like really hopped up PT cruiser, but they're out there and weirdly enough, there are people that would collect them. Oh, mo- mo- most definitely. And I, and I know a couple of automotive designers who bought them new and have held on to them because they really admired them. And I'm you know, I, I think that they were actually on the right track. I think that when everything is said and done, uh, history will come out on the side of the PT Cruiser, in spite of the, the current anti-boomer sentiment that seems to be so very popular. Oh, yeah. You know, it'll just turn into another one of those cases of the, like the K car, or some of that era cars, where for years it was so shun shun the non-believer status and now they're very sought after and really collectible in certain circles it'll happen oh absolutely absolutely now i just hope that uh, we're able to continue to enjoy our internal combustion engine cars as things transition towards electric i i think that we probably will be able to for at least the next decade to two decades but that's just my my gut instinct there I guess time will tell. <laughs> In, indeed. But in the meantime, um, I, I for one, am so happy that I have the burble of a V8 and the buzz of a four-cylinder and uh, even the, the little bark and growl of a three-cylinder in my driveway, and it's going to be that way at least for the foreseeable future. Nice. For me, it's been driving around a fairly fuel-efficient little three-cylinder teeny car, because I've been mostly driving a smart car around, and I absolutely adore that car, and getting 42 to 44 miles to the gallon and just loving it. It's such a hoot. 
Oh, yeah. Now, the smart card, that's another one of those cards that kind of falls into the guilty pleasure category because, um, you know, your typical American buyer, that's that stupid little thing for... But they really are interesting, both in the way they're constructed and their whole mission in life. No, the, the, the smart car is a very special car and um, well worth holding on to. So a random piece of interesting things. Do you know what SMART actually stands for? It's actually an acronym. I would have known it when they were introduced, but unfortunately the, the cocktails I have imbibed in the intervening years have erased that portion of my memory. It stands for Swatch Mercedes Art. I knew that Swatch was involved with the Smart Car Project, but I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I did not recall the part about them being uh, in the acronym like that. Because they, because uh, you know, they were the the original, the 450 chassis, the first smart cars, you know, were a lot more characteristic and bubbly than like the 451 that I have, the second generation. And Swatch, they they told Mercedes, we want to call it the Swatch Mercedes Art Car, and Mercedes was like, nope, not gonna happen. So they acronymed it and called it the Smart Car. But I would love to find a what they refer to as a 453 Smart, which we got in the, the United States, which was 20. 16 to 2019 which is when they pulled out which was basically actually built off a renault platform but you could get those with a conventional manual gearbox with a clutch pedal oh i would love one of those but very very hard to find yeah aren't they're all automatic aren't they or mostly most of them are well all the early ones like the 450 and the 451s are amt so automated manual transmission so it's a oh, manual is that it? is automatically controlled so is it like a centrifugal clutch kind of setup, or how do they no. work? It has a flywheel clutch disc, pressure plate, throwout bearing. It just has an electronic actuator that presses against the clutch, and it has this big motor that sits on top of the transaxle that uh, changes the shift forks, and you let off the brake, it hit the gas, and it slips the clutch and goes, and then it presses the clutch, changes gear, lets go of it. So you drive it, and it's like... Arr, arr, arr. It's very odd to get used to. But the Series 3, the 453 Smarts, they used a conventional automatic in the automatic style and a manual transmission if you wanted to order it that way because it was a slightly bigger platform of a car. But those are so hard to find. But for now, you just have the endearing weird factor of the AMT, the automated manual transmission, which it takes getting used to. But mine's got the little flappy paddles on the steering wheel, so... Flappy... I'm fucking channel my best inner Jeremy Clarkson... It's got a flappy pedal gearbox. I can't. I can't do. Co- I'm not that. My ego is not even. My ego is not one tenth the size of Mr. Clarkson's. I just. I just cannot chattel him. Yeah, it's not even worth it. Oh my. Well, we are actually getting up there on time. So, do we have any ideas about what we should maybe structure for our next episode? Which we will try very much to get out a lot sooner than how, what we've been doing, because life has settled a little bit. But we'll definitely try. Well, I was thinking maybe what we could riff off of our guilty pleasures concept and maybe uh, let's pick the best cars of the early 2000s. What do you think? Yeah, that works. And again, yeah, we can always defer from that. I mean, this is off the cuff. It just I just realized that's that's 20 years ago now. So, they are oh they are the kind of car that are going to appeal to the younger young folks younger than us. Uh, for the same reason that 80s and 70s cars appealed to our generation. So, yeah, let's let's do that. Let's do cars of the early aughts. You know, I still, I still to this day, and, you know, I officially, I hate to sound like that jaded old queen when it's like, uh... <clears throat> shoe you know, fits, Mary. You know what? You know what? 
I'm, you're very glad you live so far away. I'm just kidding. Um, you know, thinking about when I first got my driver's license about what a 20-year-old car is and now sitting there going, oh, yeah, you know, an 84 Chevy Celebrity looking at it going, oh, sweet Jesus, that thing's almost 40 years old now. Oh, my God. Well, and the fact is, by the early 2000s, cars had gotten really good. A 20-year-old car, like I sold my 04 Colorado recently, and that's darn near 20 years old, and it really didn't seem like that old a truck to me. Now, part of that is is my advancing age, but the other part is that it was really pretty decently designed and pretty well-constructed and held up pretty good for those years. So, yeah, thing, things have changed. They really have, but we will talk about that on the next episode. In the meantime, thank you so very much for listening to the erudite Carrie Hubbard and myself. And as usual, thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or want to be on the show, Motors and Martinis Podcast at gmail.com. Hit us up. We'd love to hear from you, and we will catch you on the next episode. Have a good one. Yeah.